you can tell the next song that we're going to sing at the end is Joy to the World. It's a good day to sing the song, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat. Repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. As far as. As far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Wonders of his love. And wonders. Wonders of his love. Well, by now you probably know that this is one of my favorite hymns. It's one of the few Christmas carols that we sing at other times of the year. But did you know that Joy to the World was not written as a Christmas carol? In fact, in its original version, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't even written to be a song at all. Isaac Watts was one of the great hymn writers in church history and poets. And I guess nothing shows better, um, nothing tells us that he was one of the best Better than the fact that one of his most famous hymns, Joy to the World, was written by accident. And so in 1719, Watts published a book of poems in which each poem was based on a psalm. And rather than just translate the original Old Testament texts, he actually adjusted them a little bit to, to refer more explicitly to the work of Jesus as it had been revealed in the, no, in the New Testament. It was a little bit of poetic license. One of those poems that he wrote was an adaptation of Psalm 98. And so Isaac Watts interpreted this psalm as a celebration of Jesus' role as both king both of his, of his church and of the whole world. More than a century later, the second half of the poem was slightly adapted and then set to music to give us what has become really one of the most famous of all Christmas carols. Let me read the first three verses. Actually, Ben read earlier the, the first three verses of Psalm 98. Let me read um, verses 4 through 9. So the first three were our call to worship, but let me pick it up in verse 4. This is really what Joy to the World is based on. It says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness 
and the peoples with equity. So this begs a question, I think. What is the source of joy? What's the source of of your joy? Have you been joyful these last couple of months, weeks? James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you believe that the the trials of this year, and we have all been through trials to a different different extents, but do you believe that these trials have been producing steadfastness in you? This is cause for joy. This is really what Jesus is talking about here in the upper room discourse in Psalm, I mean in John um, 14, 15, 16, and then when he prays in 17. He's been warning his disciples that they will be facing various trials, trials of various kinds. But he says, take heart. Because since God has promised to never leave them nor forsake them, but is even sending another helper to be with them forever, this testing of their faith that they are about to face will produce in them a steadfastness that will have its full effect. And because they have Christ, because they have the Holy Spirit, or they're about to be given the Holy Spirit, they will lack nothing. And they will enter glory, perfect and complete. I want to pick up our reading today in verse 20 of John 16. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 33. So John chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 20 to 33. It says this, Jesus is speaking and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Just stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on these words, that we would take heart, knowing that Christ has overcome the world, and that our joy would be complete. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick up Jesus' teaching here in this chapter, we need to remember that that all through these, these past several chapters, really, he's been pointing his disciples to trust in him. And that by trusting in him, they will have joy. Joy that is inexhaustible, inextinguishable. Joy that no one can take from them. This is the joy of waking up on a morning when the sun is shining when it was supposed to be raining. (laughs) This is the joy that you feel on Easter Sunday, typically. This is the joy of the resurrection, but it's even more than that. Look again at verse 22. He says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. For the disciples especially, this is the reality of faith becoming sight. This is the joy of seeing the resurrected Christ. It's a reality of, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, which says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, Paul says. This is the joy of when we will be able to sing with the, with the multitude of the heavenly host, holy, 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 in the presence of the Lord. When we can sing that in His presence, face to face. And as Jesus completes this teaching and this encouragement of His disciples here at the, at the end of chapter 16... Chapter 17 really is his prayer for them. And so as he completes this section, he's he's slightly shifting their focus. For three years, Jesus has been their rabbi. He's been their master and teacher. And throughout that time, he's been, he, they really have been, have been trying to wrap their minds around what it really means that he is the Christ, the, the promised one of God. And now here here he is telling them that that in a little while he's going to be going to the Father. Well, that part is confusing enough. But he's also telling them that the role that he's had during this time with them is going to be transferred to, to someone called a paraclete, another helper, advocate, counselor. Someone else will be providing from now on their care and oversight. Someone else will bear witness about him, will remind him of the things that Jesus has said and and will teach them all things. Someone else will guide them into all truth and will also convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Someone else who is also sent by the Father and the Son and is also himself God. He is going to the Father, but remember, He has said, and if I, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Jesus is going to the Father that, that they may go to the Father as well. And it was for this purpose that Jesus came into the world. That through his sacrifice for sin, all who would trust in him might be brought to the Father. Not just the disciples. Not just these eleven, but all who would believe. And so as a result of all of this, here are three characteristics of the disciples' relationship with him that are also true of us. I'm going to make it easy for you. It's their prayer, their faith, and their peace. Their prayer, their faith, and their peace. I want to begin with the disciples' prayer. The disciples' prayer. Pick it up in 23 and 24. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Last week, as we looked at the the previous verses here, um, I mentioned that there are a few ways that we can interpret that phrase, in a little while. Or rather, there are a few little whiles that Jesus could have meant when he said, in a little while you will not see me, and again, in a little while you will see me. Well, one of the reasons that I think Jesus is, is not only referring to his death and resurrection in the coming days, but he's also speaking to us in our day, is because of his use of that term, in that day, here in verse 23. He actually uses it a couple of times in this passage. The phrase, in that day. Throughout the scriptures, this phrase, that day or in that day, it's used to talk about the last days, the end of the age. This, this last day that Paul writes about in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18, for example, when he writes this, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. On that day. The day of judgment. The day of reward for his saints. But we also know that this isn't only referring to that final day of judgment. That final day of judgment that has not come yet. But also to, the, to all of the time after his resurrection and ascension as well. All throughout history up to the judgment. So think of the words of the new covenant. Promised, uh, it's promised in Jeremiah 31, but it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. This is the promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. We are living in those days. 
He established the new covenant in his blood. Really, on the very next day from when he, where we are, John 16, when he spoke these words. We are living in that day and we're anxiously awaiting also for that day. This is what we sometimes call the already and the not yet. We're living in those days and we are waiting for that day. So here we could read this like this. In that day, after Jesus has risen and ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit has been sent to you, you will no longer ask me anything. Instead, you will ask the Father in my name, in Jesus' name. Now, I'm guessing that you understand that when we use the phrase, when we pray, um, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of our prayers, that it, it's not an incantation. It's not a magic formula. We're actually praying in the name of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, the first thing that we should see here is that Jesus is directing the disciples toward the Father. Now, this, is, this isn't a denial of the, of the Trinitarian nature of God, that he is one God in three persons. It really is an affirmation of it. All three persons of the Godhead of the Trinity are active in prayer. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are united in, as one in character, united in, as one in purpose. They, are, they share in one divine and eternal nature. But all of Christ's ministry has been aimed at bringing the lost sheep of Israel, as well as what he will say in um, chapter 10, I think, other sheep that are not of this fold, Gentiles, us. All of his ministry has been aimed at bringing the lost sheep of Israel into covenant communion with the Father. And there are a few defining aspects of this communion. Namely, it is word and sacrament. And we're also looking at here prayer. Again, he directs them and us really to pray to the Father. This should be our common practice. We should address the the correct person of God. We should pray to the Father. At the very beginning of his ministry, he did this very same thing. And actually was scandalous, especially to the the Pharisees. This is one of the Pharisees' charges against him. He, He called God Father. Remember, he taught his disciples to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So at the very beginning and at the end of his ministry, he directed his disciples to pray and and to direct their prayer attention to the Father. But he doesn't take himself out of the picture. In fact, he's teaching us here that when we pray, we are praying through the mediating ministry of Jesus. We pray through the Son. It's not wrong to address Jesus in your prayers. Just don't forget about him. And don't forget about the Father. Listen to what Paul says of the... Really, he's talking about the Christian Jews and Gentiles that have been brought together in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, he says, For through him, that is Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For through Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. 
Through Jesus, we have access to the Father in prayer. But it doesn't stop there. Our prayer is also spiritually empowered by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul tells us, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Prayer, and, and really this is key for us, prayer is, is, is just like salvation in that it is through the Son, by the Spirit, and to the Father. So in salvation, we are reconciled to God, to the Father. And in prayer, we are in communion with God. And the goal of both, the goal of salvation, the goal of prayer is the same. Joy. The goal of your salvation and the goal of your prayer is joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Joy. What were the results of the resurrection here in verse 22? Or what was the result according to verse 22? So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Joy. It's the same here. And joy isn't mere circumstantial happiness. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of redemption and a life of prayer. Joy is the natural outworking of salvation as the Spirit of God teaches us, comforts us, helps us as we devote ourselves to praying to our Father who art in heaven. Imagine what we would look like at the end of our lives... Just imagine what type of person we would be at the end of our lives if we really did pray without ceasing. Our joy would be full, it says here. This is the first characteristic here of of the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer leading to joy. The second, it really, the second characteristic that we can see here is his faith. I want to look at the disciples' faith here in verses 25 to 31. Let me read this again. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when uh, I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now the disciples respond in verse 29, and his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Jesus lived and died that his people would be forgiven, would be justified, would be reconciled to God. Jesus brings us into relationship with him. In fact, you might have used the phrase before, you have asked Jesus into my heart. This is what we mean. It's a little bit more accurate. 
He brings us into relationship with Him, with Himself, so that we would know the Father. Up until this point, He's spoken to them largely in in parables and in proverbs and in figures of speech. He has um, subtly referred to other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. But now with the coming of the Spirit and the words that the Spirit will inspire these men, who will soon be called apostles, to write down, he's going to speak to them plainly about the Father. So Peter will put it like this years later as he writes this. He says in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Jesus never stops being our teacher. He has given us His Spirit, who has given us His Word. This is the very Word of God. But he's also given us the gift of what we sometimes call the ministerial office to carry on the teaching. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7, Paul says, Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Gift. What gift is he talking about? Well, Paul in true Paul fashion goes on a little bit of a tangent in verses 8, 9, and 10. But in 11, he comes back to his point, and, and this is the gift that he's talking about. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together with, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Specifically there, the pastor-teacher was given to the church by Christ as a gift that we may be taught God's word to conform to the image of Christ. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd-teachers. But I want you to know and understand that really what Jesus is establishing here isn't, it isn't a layer of bureaucracy. Look again at verses 26 and 7. He says, In that day you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Because the Father loves us, we can go directly to him. We can go directly to the Father with our cares. We can cast all of our cares upon him because of faith, Jesus says. Now, I've changed the word from what the Bible says. Verse 27 says that you have loved and believed. Look at verse 27 again. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's faith. We have put our faith, our trust in Christ. 
We can approach God in prayer because our faith is in Jesus Christ. That any Christian can. You don't need a, you don't need a different mediator to go for you like, like Moses had to go for the people of Israel. You don't need a priest. You have loved and believed in Jesus and He is enough. Christ is enough. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Chapter 1. Children with access to the Father. Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, because He has given you the right to become children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The preacher of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace and to help in time of need. That's what he's getting at there in verse 28. He's going to pass through the heavens to the Father's right hand. Look again at verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and is seated at God's right hand, where he continues to pray for us. Now this is where the disciples should have said nothing. They should have not said anything. They've done a good job now for a couple of chapters not saying anything. But those disciples had to interject here. Verses 29 and 30 are one of those, oh, I get it, moments where they clearly do not get it. Look at it again. The disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now, picture this. He has just said to them that he is leaving the world and going to the Father. We know that he's talking about the ascension. Do you remember what the disciples did at the ascension? They stood there looking into heaven and the angels had to say, Hey, what are you doing? You're just standing there. Probably with their mouths open. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now you believe? They don't understand what he's talking about. This is where they think they know what they're supposed to say. And and it's true enough, but they're still clearly confused. Thankfully, when the Holy Spirit comes, they will understand all of this. But now... Now their faith is childlike, but not in that pure and innocent way, more like in an immature way. Maybe it would be a little more accurate to say that they have, they have a middle school faith. But regardless, Jesus moves quickly over this to make one more promise for them. And this promise is actually also this third characteristic of the disciples of Jesus Christ here. And as the others, it stands for us as well. And this is the disciples' peace. Look at these last couple of verses, 32 and 33. 
Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This doesn't look peaceful at first. But Jesus is actually using, again, a little bit of prophetic language here particularly in verse 32. He's referring to Zechariah 13, verse 7, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The hour has come. The hour of his arrest leading to his death. It's right around the corner. In chapter 18, right at, listen, he's going to close in prayer in chapter 17. It's a very important prayer, but he's going to close in prayer in chapter 17. And then the next thing that happens, right around the corner, chapter 18, he's going to be confronted by his betrayer, Judas, along with a battery of police officers and, and soldiers, and they're going to take him into custody, and his disciples will all, pretty much all flee. They're going to run away. A couple will follow at a distance, but they're going to run away. Yet he is not alone. At that hour, these eleven who believe in his knowledge and authority, they say that here, yet they fail to trust in his person and work. They're going to be overcome by confusion and fear. And so when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. Yet in that hour, it will be clear that God is truly in these events. This is his plan of redemption. When the entire world, even the disciples, believe that Jesus has been defeated, or even worse, that Jesus has even given up the presence of the Father, the fact that God is with the Son declares the opposite. He's not defeated because God is there. In his darkest hour, God is with him. Okay, but I said that this was about peace. What about it? Well, Jesus summarizes all of this teaching, really. Everything he's been saying to them in several chapters now, by saying in verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is so similar to how this discourse began. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. But, but notice here at the end of this, he, he really speaks in the past tense. He says, I have overcome the world already. There's never any doubt in Jesus' mind. There's never any doubt because of the promises of Genesis chapter 3. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or the songs of of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And what does God do? He laughs. How about the prophecies of Isaiah? Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. So what what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. This is the promise here in prayer. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He's passed through the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or virus, or crashed economy, or on and on. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Take heart. Have courage. Consider it all joy. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace and joy. In the world you will have trouble, tribulation. But take heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. Have courage. Consider it all joy. Christ has overcome the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would leave here today that today we would be encouraged, joyful, that we would understand this peace that passes all understanding. I don't even know how that's possible. We would experience that because we have prayed, because we have brought our cares into your presence. We have prayed in the name of Christ who has overcome the world. Father, we praise your name. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.